I think they're doing a big disservice by not being forthright and providing clinicians with the information we need. I mean, experts in virology do not know how this, these vaccines work. We have to kind of piece it together ourselves. They have this data. They just don't want to share it. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm the creative director of the FLCCC Alliance. And we're here once a week for 30 minutes to 45 minutes, and maybe we'll go an hour, it happens. We tell you what's happening in prevention and treatment of COVID-19 that our medical team knows works. And in just a moment, you're going to have the double treat because you're going to get to hear from our own Dr. Corey, who's going to be joined by Dr. Paul Merrick, the big brain of our COVID protocols. He, they're going to tell you about our, our latest treatment. We're unveiling it tonight, the IMASS protocol, that's M-A-S-S. And it's designed to help a mass of people in countries that don't have huge budgets and don't have the medical resources that those of us are able to use here in the Western world. It is designed to help people in the developing world. Doctors Corey and Merrick will tell you all about this and then they're gonna take your questions, as many as we can possibly get in. So stay tuned. Now, first you know, I have to give you this important disclaimer. Please remember, we are not giving you personal medical advice. We are giving you information that you need to take to your own personal physician who knows what's going on inside your body and what other medications you're taking. We don't have that information and that's important. So you'll take that to your doctor to decide what's best for you. Also, it's important for me to tell you who we are. The FLCCC Alliance is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We do not sell drugs. We do not manufacture drugs. We don't have a financial interest in ivermectin or anything else that's in IMAS or IMASC Plus or MAT Plus or any of the protocols that our medical team put together, period. We just came together at the beginning of this COVID mess to save lives in a pandemic. That's it. That's all we do. And we're trying to do it. It's been a hard slog, but we're trying to do it. We're still at it. And we live on donations. And some of you people, many of you people have been kind enough to give us donations. Thank you. Thank you. We love you. God bless you for that. And um, now, Dr. Corey, are you there? Are you ready to uh, tell everybody um, about this wonderful podcast that you were on and, and bring in yeah, Dr. Yeah. Merrick? Yeah, so is, uh, is Paul there? Does he know how to work a, a Zoom at this point? Um, I think so. <laughs> All right, well, I'll, I'll start without him. But uh, anyway, let me just share some slides. Uh, Paul will join and he will speak when I tell him to and not a moment before. I'll speak when I want to, Peter. <laughs> There he is. <laughs> you can try and mute me, but the mute button won't work. No, I, I definitely would. I would never try to do that, Paul. Uh, so, Paul, this is what I thought we'd do. By the way, just uh, there's only, uh, you know, 
a really large audience. So we, we don't want to tell them the secret sauce, but uh, we haven't really planned much. But this is what I thought we would do tonight. I put together just some random slides um, of just stuff that went around the world, stuff that happened the past week. And then I ended up on IMAS and I recover. And I thought we'd just say a few words about that and then take some questions. Okay. Sound like a plan? Uh, yeah, that's a plan. How about buying a proper computer rather than this thing you're using? <laughs> Is there something wrong with my computer that you can see from there? Yeah, it's not a computer. It's something else. It's some other thing. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I was going to introduce you. You are the uh, the brains behind the operation. I'm the beauty um, and and the brawn, I would say. Um, but uh, anyway, it's glad to, uh, glad to have you, Paul. Paul, do you know that we do this every week? Did you know that? Every week? Is that like every six days or seven <laughs> days? Or how it's a, it's every Wednesday, but this is the first time you've been invited on. So we just uh, we were saving the best for last. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, so as uh, as the opening video already showed, uh, we were all really excited as an organization this week. You know, this is um, the Dark Horse podcast was one that we've all become fans of recently when uh, Brett Weinstein was starting to cover ivermectin in a really credible, very thoughtful, uh, very well-researched way. And um, it was just awesome. Uh, I got invited on. We had this great conversation, uh, two and a half hours, which I'm hearing that people are watching. Paul, you watched the entire two and a half hours? Yeah, I didn't fall asleep. It's really astonishing. <laughs> but I got, I got high praise from Paul, and apparently the, uh, and the podcast is getting really popular. But we got to cover just a lot of topics, and that was just really uh, a joy. Um, you shared one of the comments, and the comments on the podcast are really great. Uh, this was my favorite. This is sent to me by Ivan, our colleague from Norway, uh, who sent me this about an hour ago. So uh, this is, Corey is like the guy in the movie that gets sent back in time to warn humanity about a cataclysmic event to happen, and all he gets is ridicule. So, uh, yes, I do feel like a character in a movie at times. Um, so let's just go over where we are with uh, sort of ivermectin in the world, just a random assortment of stuff. But first is... We like uh, we think Mexico is probably one of the greatest successes, although there are more successes uh, coming out more and more, um, especially in India. And I'll get to that in a second. But Mexico is absolutely crushing COVID. Um, if you look at the case counts and deaths, and this is from our analyst, Juan Chimie, who's been following many regions and countries around the world. But now even the Mexican government is showing their data. And if you look at this, this starts at the beginning of the year. Their test and treat program started on December 29th. And you can see that they basically eradicated the, ca the cases and deaths. And now it's like going to pre-pandemic levels. Um, and if you notice that by the end of March, only less than 1% of Mexico was vaccinated. I think they're up to like around 5% now. But by the end of March, where you already saw this precipitous decline, almost exactly nobody had been vaccinated in Mexico. So this is not the vaccines. This is ivermectin in action. Um, and what's interesting is, uh, you know, there's a little civil war, just like, uh, Paul, the civil war we started in South Africa, right, where they had to fight the government uh, to get ivermectin approved, and they quashed, uh, the, the, you know, their, their surge down there. Um, in Mexico, this is a really interesting article where the, you know, the... The agency uh, officials who started the program, um, they were they were attacked by the federal ministry, which is sort of much more allied with the WHO for going rogue. 
Um, and even though they emptied the hospitals, the occupancy rates 25% on average now throughout Mexico, um, they're still getting uh, criticized by the, uh, by the federal ministry. So it's just another piece of insanity. And now you're seeing more publications, wider publications, start to pick up the fact that, um, that in Mexico, they, they saw these massive drops with, uh, with cheap medication. Um, other random stuff, I like this one. This is written by Peter Yim in Trial Site News who's doing something that the FLCCC agrees very strong with, which is he went to the PI of the Active Six, which is, you know, the NIH sort of sponsored uh, trial on ivermectin and asked her, how, how did you get IRB approval uh, to do a placebo controlled trial when this, when this drug is sitting on, you know, dozens of randomized controlled trials. And uh, she actually did not answer and she would not share. Sorry, I jumped a little bit there. Uh, apparently she would not share uh, the summary of the evidence that they comp uh, compiled. And so um, I strongly question how an IRB uh, could, uh, could, you know, approve a placebo controlled trial, given that we know this prevents hospitalizations and it prevents death. You know, you can't give placebo with an effective medicine. And so I'm glad that people are asking that question. And then this was also encouraging, right? So the UK, uh, the Voice of Community Pharmacy in the UK, which is a pretty big organization, they actually are now writing, you know, we're starting to see more positive uh, reports uh, from around the world. And I think this is a big one, which is a major pharmaceutical or, or um, pharmacist association writing uh, positive benefits and really recommending uh, that it be used uh, in COVID. So, um, and then even more positive, right, which is, this was from PBS NewsHour. They did this whole article on like the closing in on a cure. Now this is buried deep in the article. There's a little paragraph on ivermectin. The first part is all about Merck and all about the stuff they're doing with molnupiravir and, and a couple other pharmaceutical companies, molecules uh, that they think will be effective. But then they actually turn to the idea that there's a repurposed drug out there that can work. And although this isn't you know uniformly glowing, um, at least they put it on the map and they say uh, that a meta-analysis suggests that it works. Um, and then they also mentioned that when they asked Merck to maybe expand upon that little statement that they put on their website, apparently, Paul, they did not want to talk about it. Would you imagine that? Um, so they, Merck is just hiding on that. And then in India, some prominent physicians are talking about how, uh, how effective it is. This is a chief uh, uh, intensivist in Mumbai. Um, and this is, again, another really positive report. And so you're just seeing more and more positive reports. And then this is the latest from Juan Chimie. Um, <clears throat> I asked him to show us what's happening in India. And these are all the places that, that adopted ivermectin widely. And you're seeing these huge drops in test positivity. So like almost no one's testing positive right now. The cases are, are declining rapidly as well as the deaths. And so they're all on these precipitous declines after adopting ivermectin. Now, we all know, we talked about this uh, in another webinar, Tamil Nadu, which is a state in Southern India where Chennai is, um, you know, they have a, a, a chief minister who I can't stop mentioning the fact that his name is M.K. Stalin. Um, I just find it's very fitting, but uh, they outlawed ivermectin use. And you can see they're not doing so hot. So the fatalities are still on the rise. Um, the cases are just now coming down. And that's actually kind of an interesting story in that in Chennai, they're using a protocol that has some sort of um, 
uh, it's sort of some sort of natural substance. I don't, I don't know too much about what it is, but it's actually been shown to be effective in COVID. So they actually are getting some benefits from their treatment protocol. It's not ivermectin, but it's something else that they're using. So at least, uh, at least they're doing something uh, to help the poor folks. But I would say ivermectin would be a little bit easier to scale. Um, and then don't forget Slovakia, right? So Slovakia is the another rogue breakaway state, right? So in Eastern Europe, uh, they went ahead and they adopted ivermectin and they're doing just, you know, doing incredibly well, again, in controlling the pandemic uh, without vaccines. And then was also lots of rogue states in Argentina, and Argentina, those states that are using it, the, the fatality rates are the lowest in Argentina, as well as the cases. And so they're beating all the other areas that aren't using it, especially the big cities. Um, and then, you know, Betsy mentioned in the opening, um, what's really interesting, and Paul, I'll have you talk a little bit about IMAS, but, you know, what's really cool, and I can't, we can't say more specific stuff, but we've been approached as an organization by now three different really wealthy uh, philanthropists. One, one is a, a major organization. The other two are um, very uh, wealthy philanthropy sources, I would say, who are interested in creating programs of really mass distribution of, of ivermectin to a number of low and middle income countries uh, that are getting ravaged by COVID. And so, you know, just like those states in India, you know, completely ignored the WHO. Now that we see, we're seeing private citizens uh, who are actually also ignoring the WHO, taking matters in their home, own hands. And, and we're, we've been honored to, to act as, as a sort of a guide. And so this was uh, for one of the entities, we decided to come up with a much more simplified protocol. So uh, probably a lot of the viewers on this um, podcast, probably this isn't appropriate, but we just thought we'd share with you some of the work we're doing uh, again around the world. Paul, you want to say anything about IMAS? Um, or are you sleeping? No, you put me to sleep here. <laughs> no, I mean, so basically, um, it's a mass distribution for the prevention of, of um, that disease. Well, I can't remember what it's called, COVID. <laughs> so, so we know that ivermectin is you know, highly effective for prophylaxis i.e. prevention, and this is based on studies in healthcare workers uh, where it's been very effective. Um, obviously, you know, in many of the studies, the dosing was based on a patient's weight, which becomes somewhat difficult when you're doing a mass distribution. So for that reason, you know, we decided to use the fixed dose of 18 milligrams and pharmacokinetic data would suggest that such a dose actually is pretty is pretty um, effective, you know, across most weights. So you know, someone weighing more than you know forty kilograms to one hundred and ten kilograms, eighty milligrams will give you adequate uh, serum levels. Um, so ivermectin obviously is the most important part of the protocol, but you know, since many of these people are likely to be poorly nourished, um, we, we, we reckon that the addition of a multivitamin as well as vitamin D3 would be important. So, um, you know, although places like India uh, get pretty much sufficient sunlight, it appears that, you know, over 60% of the population is vitamin D deficient. 
And we know vitamin D plays an import, really important role uh, as an immune modulator and preventing um, COVID-19. So that, that really was the reason for combining ivermectin, vitamin D, and a multivitamin together um, you know, to provide some nutritional support, improve vitamin D status, and uh, obviously um, the ivermectin as a very potent antiviral. Yeah, and, and the other thing I wanted to mention, Paul, is that you know this was also in collaboration with the Bird Group, right? So the British Ivermectin Recommendation Development, which was like sixty-five uh, specialists, researchers, and clinicians, and so um, they also were involved. And so it's you know a collaboration with a a similar group of experts, um, and you know, and this protocol is really adaptable, right? So depending on the resources that are being committed to these efforts. Uh, we've even been talking with one effort where we might even just pare it down to just ivermectin and a multivitamin, um, you know, leaving off even the, the mouthwashes. It really depends on, on the scale and, and the resources behind it. Um, and we've also even talked about maybe just doing a treatment protocol, really, because to, to get people to prophylax or to use it preventively on a large scale, it might be a little bit more difficult. Um, but to have it in regions where you had, you know, large stores of ivermectin that anyone could take upon first symptoms would probably be a, a next best um, approach. And so there's a number of approaches that we can take, um, but mostly we also just want to make sure that if anyone gets sick, that their household is protected, right? Because that's the other... Uh, series of trials, right? The trials are not only in healthcare workers, but also in the households of people who got sick and it showed, uh, uh, you know, very good protection against spreading it. And so, especially in some of these areas where they have these massive surges, um, at least having an early at home, as well as a post-exposure prevention should do a lot to, to mitigate transmission. And then we're not going to go too much into this tonight, but we also are doing another collaboration. So, uh, Paul, um, what I also want to let the audience know, because Paul's on with us, but um, I'm going to say some nice things about Paul. I try not to do that too hey, often. Yeah, but before you do that, you know, maybe we should mention the paper from Israel and Dr. Schwartz, which came out this week. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think it's an important paper because there are, believe it or not, there are people who who are acerebrate, I don't know if you call them acerebrate or decerebrate or, or what they are, you know, people in high places who actually do not believe ivermectin has antiviral properties. There are still people of influence who have this bizarre notion. It's a bizarre notion. Anyway, this was an impeccably done study. So people who had COVID were put in these hotels where they were observed. And the researchers randomized people, just double blind. So everyone was blinded. Well, the, the, the NIH is blind, but that's a different story. <laughs> so, so that's triple blind, Paul. Right. Blinded to allocation. It was placebo controlled. So patients were randomized to either ivermectin or, or placebo. And then they followed these patients. What was truly astonishing in the study is not only the endpoint, the primary endpoint was looking at PCR clearance. So how, how quickly you clear the PCR. PCR is not a good test because it doesn't tell you if you have dead or live virus. All it does is it picks up viral RNA. But what they did in this study, which was really outstanding, they actually did viral culture. 
they cultured for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that horrible thing. And there was a significant difference in viral culture after starting ivermectin between the two groups. It was highly statistically significant. And it was not by chance, you know, so the naysayers would say, oh, it was just by chance, but it's completely impossible. The, it was randomized accounting for co-confounders and the-, the And it was large, Paul, there's a large difference. It was a significant difference. And it's really important because they actually cultured virus. So I think this yeah. proves definitively, I mean, we've known I mean, it's been quite clear to anybody who has half a brain, maybe a quarter of a brain, that actually ivermectin is a potent antiviral drug. But this study really proves it. And it's pretty astonishing that you have people or companies like Merck who still are, are questioning it, and the NIH and the WHO. I mean, it's truly astonishing when people don't want to face the obvious truth. It's clearly, it's clearly obvious. And um, this study is just one of many studies which shows and demonstrates the antiviral properties of ivermectin. I think, you know, it's come to the point now, you know, what's the point about arguing? There's just such an overabundance of data Paul, that's that's what you and I talk about. And I've been saying, like, I, I am like so tired of presenting data on ivermectin because it's just it, it's already overwhelming data. But I think your point is really key is that this study actually showed another benefit that the other studies haven't. They've all shown uh, time to PCR clearance. But this was the first one to show culture data that's different. And I think you're right. It's just another pillar showing that this thing is a really potent antiviral. And so um, it does add to the already overwhelming <laughs> amount of evidence. But um, I don't know that it changes anything. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, well, it, you know, the reason that I quote it is, you know, the people who live in ivory towers, and I'm not really sure what an ivory tower is, because I think they mostly sit on the potty is that they dismissed most of the studies because they came from, and I'll be polite, you know, middle and lower income countries where doctors are cheats. So, you know, and they've dismissed the data. So this study was impeccably done by an Israeli <coughs> university, which I think all people would agree, these are highly reputable scientists. And it's very difficult to challenge their their scientific integrity. So, you know, and this was a randomized double-blinded study. So, you know, that's the, you know, the highest level of scientific proof. But see, Paul, what I say, so that's from a top university and researcher in Israel, right? Uh, not a low-income country. It showed profound result which is consistent with all those little poorer countries that do, did all these studies. And, you know, one of the things I say is the only way you could ever get ivermectin wrong is if somehow somebody started a conspiracy and went to all of these hospitals all around the world in all of these countries and somehow got everyone to do fraudulent trials. For what purpose? It's not clear to me. And there would have to have been some impeccable form of communication amongst all of them for absolutely zero gain. And so the whole thing is ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, the whole concept that these are, you know, shithole countries and they can't do research and 
that the researchers have some kind of vested interest is completely absurd. I mean, these are really dedicated yeah. clinicians who, who are just looking to find the truth. And, you know, the results, as you say, are reproducible across, across the world. So it would have to be some kind of enormously orchestrated conspiracy to have achieved such a thing if it wasn't the truth. But, you know, people don't like the truth because it goes against their agenda. And we, we all understand that. We've been talking about that a lot. Now, um, since we have you on, Paul, I want to take yeah, this so just well, Hold on a second. So there are a lot of questions asking about this study. So this, this study was, um, it was, is available in one of the preprints, um, one of the preprint servers, and maybe uh, we can get Betsy or someone to actually put the paper online because I think it's a really important paper. You know, you know all, the, all the previous papers are really important, but I think this is a particularly good paper that it's very difficult to argue against the results. Unfortunately, though, you know, the, what we hear from the, these researchers is they're having difficulty having their paper published, which is truly astonishing and part of the erosion of scientific integrity which has accompanied COVID-19 is that the major medical journals will selectively publish negative studies on ivermectin and alternative therapy, but they will not publish positive studies, even if they are impeccably done. One just has to look at the absurd JAMA paper on ivermectin, which was so ridiculously flawed that, you know, I think a third grader could have done a better job. So we have this terrible selective publication, which is giving a very biased view of, of the literature. It's, it's unfortunate and it's just, um, it's part of this overall, whatever's going on, this badness. That, no, it's, I mean, on. Paul, it's unconscionable. I mean, Dr. Schwartz uh, told us the other day, he's the P PI of the study. He's on his like fourth rejection of a really well done randomized controlled trial from a top university in Israel and he's getting rejected. And of course, Dr. El Ghazar, who did the 600 person randomized controlled trial showing massive benefits of ivermectin, he still hasn't published. He, he's on his seventh rejection. Um, and, and, and JAMA publishes a negative study or purportedly negative study, it actually wasn't, but anyway. Um, the, um, yeah, we can, we can uh, post that uh, on the website uh, tomorrow, not a problem. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, Paul, is your, um, uh, that I don't think we, we talk about enough, which is Paul's as a sort of a master Bible uh, to the care of the COVID patient. I think this document is unbelievable, really for the physicians out there. It goes over every facet of uh, lots of the pathophysiology and, and really in depth on all the possible treatments and our approaches to treating this disease. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a really great uh, comprehensive guide. It's, I don't know, I think you have like 500 references on there, Paul, when I took a look at it earlier. Um, so it's, it's very well referenced. But um, what was just added, is you know we have the uh, math plus iMask plus um, and now now we have an iRecover protocol. So Paul has uh, an early version. So just like with 
I mass uh, protocol where we did in collaboration with Bird, we've also collaborated um, on uh, on eye recover. And so this is the outlines of of, of what it's going to be. Uh, but we're still finished. We're still finalizing it. Um, we're working on the algorithm, the graphics, the protocol, and we hopefully will have that out um, in the next week. But it's again centered around ivermectin as well as some other therapies that we'll either use in conjunction or in or sequentially uh, if we don't get patients uh, fully better with just uh, ivermectin. And that we're working uh, with a, a few different groups. One's Dr. Bean, um, who's been treating a lot of long haulers, and then. Um, <clears throat> a group with uh, Dr. Bruce Patterson and Dr. Yo. Um, they have a, a, basically an organization that does nothing but treat uh, long haulers. They're doing a lot of research. And so um, we've collaborated with a number of groups. Um, and I think this is gonna be a really helpful protocol that's gonna do uh, just a ton at mitigating just the, the insane amounts of morbidity that people are left with uh, after COVID. Um, Paul, is there anything else you wanna to add to that? Before yeah, so just yeah, so you know, I think that there are numerous publications on, you know, the long hauler post-COVID syndrome, which describes, you know, the epidemiology and the complex symptomatology. What is truly astonishing is that there are no papers or no guidance on the treatment. The NICE guideline, the, the, so the NICE, which is the group, the the the, the gods out of the UK. Um, basically, you have to follow their, their guidelines, otherwise they throw you into the ocean. Um, so they have a guideline on um, post-COVID. They, they have no, no treatment recommendations. It's all, you know, exercise and diet, which, which is fine, but, you know, it's not going to help people that have severe symptomatology. So the, the tragedy with um, post-COVID is apart from Dr. Yeo's group, there's no one really doing research. There's one paper looking at ivermectin in post-COVID. So, you know, our iRecover protocol is just based on clinical judgment and clinical expertise. You know, while the, the, the other protocols are based strongly on published scientific data, there's no data to help us, to guide us in the treatment of this terribly dis disabling condition. So that's that. So you know, we came up with the, this protocol just based on clinical reasoning and clinical experience. Um, so obviously, as you'll note, it's not referenced because you know there's very little scientific data on um, which to base the treatment. But you know, like you said, I think with the groups that we've partnered with. The amount of clinical experience, I mean, even myself, I've treated uh, a couple of dozen people with uh, long haul COVID. Uh, Dr. Bean is uh, many dozens. And then Dr. Yo's group, I think well over a thousand. I can't remember how many that they've, uh, they've even done cytokine profiles on and they've, they've tested a, a few different medicines. And so, um, yes, we don't have rigorous uh, scientific data, but we certainly know uh, we, we've discovered a few things that work. And so we're going to try to put that as a guide because there's a lot of people suffering, as you know, Paul. Yeah. So if you go back to the beginning of this pandemic, you know, those people in the ivory tower and the WHO said, you treat these people symptomatically because there's no proven scientific, scientific intervention, which is completely absurd. When people are dying, how can you not treat them? And the same applies here. There are patients that are really suffering and 
P and I have a, a common patient who's been communicating with us, who's been disabled for months. How yeah. can you just ignore these people? You have to, you have to do something. You can't just do nothing. And that's why, you know, we came up with this protocol. Um, and obviously, you know, like the rest of our protocols, I'm sure this is going to evolve with time. But, you know, you can't just ignore the, these poor people who are truly suffering and not treat them. And you give them the best treatment shot that we have. But clearly the purists were going to say, well, you can't do this because there's no randomized trial. And obviously that's completely immoral and unethical. And it's, called, it's called doctoring, Paul. We're yeah. allowed to doctor. Some of us yeah. are still allowed to doctor, I guess. Yeah, so I think, you know, the <clears throat> part that's forgotten is that, you know, these people in these high places who actually have never seen a patient, they don't know what COVID looks like. I was telling other people how to look after COVID. Uh, it's truly an astonishingly bad situation. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's take some questions, Paul. I'll probably give them all to you because uh, I usually do these. But uh, no, you can do just one thing. I noticed some of the questions going by in terms of the prophylaxis or prevention protocol, because we have changed with time. And, you know, this was based on data. You know, when we started the prevention protocol, we didn't have a lot of data, but subsequently there have been some very good studies out of uh, Chile and Argentina and Brazil, uh, which have actually informed us. So we think, you know, we originally said every second week, but, you know, the studies uh, from, you know, Carvalho and, he, and colleagues show that probably the optimal in reducing the, the, the rate as low as possible is every week. So that's yeah. why we, we've changed to, to weekly dosing. Now, if you take it bi-weekly, it still does give you some protection, but we think that the risk benefit ratio is probably optimal when it's taken once a week. Paul, we were also struggling with you know, at the time, we didn't have a lot of safety data on weekly. And also, we thought resources might be strained, but we were a little bit naive on that uh, because there wasn't a massive run on ivermectin, uh, although that, that seems to be turning now. So, um, Gentlemen, yeah. I have uh, hello there, Paul. And you don't have to go scrolling through the questions because we have uh, Joyce behind the scenes who is doing that and picking out the ones that a lot of people are asking. So, and she has given them to me. So I'm going to put them to you. Uh, with the, we have one from Carolyn who says, can someone go on and off ivermectin it's based on the circumstances of a possible exposure to a, a risk when you're taking it for prevention? So you're on a prevention protocol and then sometimes you know you're exposed and at other times you're at home and you're not. Uh, can you go on and off it? What do you think? Yeah, so I'll answer that because Pierre seems confused by that very simple question. I can see that he's, I can see that cogs turning. Absolutely, yes. So for example, when you're in a situation that you're in high risk, you take the ivermectin. So, you know, when I was flying on an airplane, I took ivermectin, even though I've been vaccinated, just because I don't know the people sitting next to me. And it's very difficult to social distance on an airplane. The seats are not six feet apart. So that when you're in a high risk situation, you take ivermectin. Um, so when I was rounding in, in this particular ICU, 
I took ivermectin when I wasn't and I was my baseline risk came down, I stopped the ivermectin. So yes, you can take it when you're at a heightened risk of, of, of exposure and being exposed to um, this pesky virus. Would you agree with that, Dr. Corey? I was going to say the same thing, Paul. You Were you? Were you? <laughs> you stole it out That's of my really mouth. good to know. Because I've been on, I have not been vaccinated. I've been on ivermectin and I, you know, when I'm just messing around at home and it's just my husband and the dog and me, I'm not worried. But when I go running around New York City or in a plane or something, yeah. Uh, so this is, that's really nice to know. Um, question yeah, I think number- it makes yeah. it much more cost-effective then, you know, if you, if you're, you know, you know, socially distancing and not having big groups of people and obviously you're not vaccinated, then, you know, that's fine. When you, when your risk goes up, then you can take it. Question number two is from Mead Coplin, who says, so just why does an anti-parasitic medicine like ivermectin work on COVID? So I'll take that too. I can see Piers okay. confused. So you know what, uh, and this sounds really stupid and childish, but if you were to design a drug for COVID, I think ivermectin would probably be near the top of the list. It actually does everything you want it to do. So ivermectin has antiviral properties, which we'll talk about. It also is very potent anti-inflammatory properties. There are some people who have a skin condition called rosea, where they have significant inflammation of the skin and they use topical ivermectin as an anti-inflammatory. But that's not the question. The question is, it just so happens that ivermectin paralyzes worms and parasites. And Dr. Corey, it, it does bad things to parasites. It paralyzes them and they die. But it, ivermectin, for very mysterious reasons, is a very potent antiviral drug. So it acts against Zika virus, it acts against um, dengue virus, it acts against influenza virus, it acts against HIV. So it has this broad spectrum antiviral property. And you know, studies have shown that there's not just one mechanism there are multiple mechanisms by which it acts as an antiviral. Um, so one of them is to block proteins getting into the nucleus. And that was what Kelly and Wagstaff described. And it appears that ivermectin is very effective against hepatitis E. And that appears to be the mechanism. But what's also interesting is that Ivermectin has activity specifically against SARS-CoV-2. So it binds the spike protein. So the spike protein is that very toxic protein which people seem to be running around and being injected with, spike protein. It's a toxic protein. So, so ivermectin actually binds and docks spike protein. So it may um, you know, in, enhance clearance by the body. It also binds to the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. So it's that enzyme which allows the virus to replicate. It also binds to a protease, much like the HIV proteases, which chops up the RNA. 
so that ivermectin acts via multiple sites to prevent replication of this virus. And the study by Dr. Schwartz from Israel proves this. I mean, he actually proved that it significantly increases viral clearance and kills the damn virus. So it's an antiviral drug. It's an anti-inflammatory drug. And actually, if you take enough of it, it will cause your brains to grow bigger. That's why Pierre's so smart. Because <laughs> he takes so much ivermectin. I take it every week. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'll take more. I'll take more. That's why I'm feeling so good lately. <laughs> All right. Now we have a question from D. Yen. How do you distinguish the declines in India to the usual declines we see in other nations not using ivermectin? versus the decline due to ivermectin use. Well, this sounds like we're going to be answering some of the critics there. Well, so so we agree that you can, you know, that it's not it's not a true prospective uh, design of a study. But the temporal association with with those places and how they used ivermectin, that's a pattern we've seen reliably and reproducibly anytime any region, state, or country adopted ivermectin into their treatment guidelines. So, so yes, you couldn't say in each particular example, um, but the totality of the, re- the reproducibility of the patterns uh, is one way. The other is, well, that's why we highlighted that state, Tabil Nadu, because in that state, in Southern India, equally as ravaged as the other places, clearly did not use ivermectin, in fact, outlawed it. And you could see it behaved very, very, very differently than the states that had it. So it's almost like a a natural experiment broke out, right? Because MK Stalin decided to outlaw ivermectin. And you got to see what happens when Stalin does dumb stuff. So um, that's that's what I would answer. All right. Okay, now we have a question uh, from Marilyn Gratias, who says, what would be a COVID-19 first symptom to watch for and then treat with ivermectin immediately? Well, I mean, usually, I mean, it could be any number. Most people uh, start to feel, I mean, the the most uh, common is probably the word malaise, right? Malaise is just a general feeling of of feeling unwell. So it could be something as nonspecific as that. You just kind of feel like you're coming down with something, right? You don't feel yourself. So fatigue, malaise, a lot of people it's fever, right? Or it can be a cough or a sore throat, but it's generally consistent. It's, you know, it starts out as a pretty routine viral syndrome. Um, Some people start uh, even with anosmia, right? They'll lose their sense of uh, smell first, but quickly followed by fever, headache, uh, like I said, malaise, fatigue, uh, things like that. So it's uh, not subtle. I mean, for, in my opinion, if you fall that if you fall ill with anything approximating a viral syndrome or that that approximates a cold, uh, you should assume it's COVID, and and you should treat appropriately. And even if it is the cold, I think ivermectin will help you anyway. Like Paul said, we we believe it's it's a broad antiviral, so uh, any viral syndrome it should work. So yeah, I think fever and flu-like symptoms are the first first symptoms. Fever and malaise and headache and flu-like symptoms. Some. Patients with COVID get diarrhea. So I see a lot of questions popping up about why I was vaccinated. (laughs) So (laughs) that's a really interesting question. And um, so, you know, I, if, 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 and so this was like three months ago. 
And, you know, full disclosure, if I had to be vaccinated again, I would think twice about it because I think at that time we really didn't, we still don't know how this vaccine works. We don't know. And I think with time, it's become clearer that it's not as safe as it's supposed to be. Um, the reason I took ivermectin as well is that um, it, it obviously doesn't provide 100% protection. And I took the ivermectin between my first and second doses. Um, you know, the question of vaccination, I think, is a very difficult one because, to be honest, we don't have all the data. You know, we're making a lot of assumptions. We, you know, these, these vaccines are not FDA approved. These are not FDA approved. They all have an emergency use authorization because they're not FDA approved. We do not understand the full complications, efficacy of these drugs. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult decision. Um, certainly it does cause, you know, neutralizing antibodies and it does protect you. But, you know, you're also giving patients spike protein. And recent data shows that spike protein can be isolated in the bloodstream after vaccination. Now, it's unfortunate that Pfizer and Moderna do have this data. They will not share it with doctors. So we do not really understand once you vaccinate it, where the RNA goes, how long it's around, what it does. Um, which is part of the problem is that there needs to be transparency. If doctors don't understand how this damn vaccine works, how can you, how can you counsel patients? So I think they're doing a big disservice by not being forthright and providing clinicians with the information we need. I mean, experts in virology do not know how this, these vaccines work. We have to kind of piece it together ourselves. They have this data, they just don't want to share it. Yeah, but Merck has put out a statement saying ivermectin's not safe after nearly 4 billion people have safely taken it. Hello. Okay, let's, <laughs> let me get on with another question here. We have uh, one from Deborah Minerding. Says, I just started back to work in healthcare. If I start on ivermectin preventively, and if the virus is now endemic, do you foresee healthcare workers need, need to take ivermectin all of our working years? Well, you know, so when we say endemic, I mean, that's one way to think of it. The, the way I think about it is, is um, you know, if if like, let's say the positivity rate or the actual case rates are so low in the population, um, I don't know that you would need to take ivermectin year round. You, you might need to take it during outbreaks or surges, um, but I, I don't know that you, that would have to be something that you would take um, uh, all the time. I mean, we, we think of ivermectin as, as a bridge to and a safety net for vaccination. And one of the interesting things that we talked about um, on the podcast with Brett Weinstein yesterday, he made a very interesting point, which is that, you know, to get to herd immunity, 
you know, you kind of can get there three ways, right? You can get there by, by, by vaccinating um, a whole portion of the population. You can also get there through herd immunity, those who've gotten sick with COVID. And then you can also get there with ivermectin. And I think if you do reach uh, herd immunity um, in, in, in one of those ways and you have such low case rates, you probably would not have to take ivermectin all the time. And so, um, again, I think if we, if, if we go after this thing more sensibly and aggressively, I think with widespread deployment of ivermectin, you can get case rates low enough where I don't think you'd have to take it uh, permanently. Okay, we have a question from uh, Yanni Weil-Laris saying, if governments, health agencies, and the media are involved in disinformation on ivermectin for COVID, what are your thoughts on the likelihood of this having happened before? I mean, disinformation has been around since, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the tobacco lobby, right? The tobacco companies invited, you know, invented disinformation. Um, many different industries and pharmaceutical companies have used disinformation uh, throughout. I mean, that, 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 that's just part of history. That's part of, uh, you know, corrupt behavior by some entities. It's not everyone. It's not all corporations, right? It's a, it's a small proportion. Um, but we, you know, we've seen disinformation from the vaccine lobby. I mean, uh, the WHO, the 2009 uh, H1N1 uh, uh, epidemic or pandemic, um, that actually wasn't a pandemic, right? So the vaccine lobby got the WHO and got them to change their definition of a pandemic so that they could vaccinate and sell more vaccines. So we've already seen really questionable behavior, and that's an understatement, um, from, I would say, the vaccine manufacturers, those who want to uh, vaccinate and sell vaccines to the world. And so it, it's not a surprise, right? Um, and, and, you know, the, the disinformation, um, although they're using a lot of different uh, entities to do it, um, a lot of them are just, are just I think, um, just kind of lazy. Like media, for some reason, just just agreed that they're not going to say anything that's not uh, approved by the NIH because they want to come back misinformation and they're just not doing their jobs. They're either unwilling or not allowed to do their jobs anymore, which is to uh, investigate and openly report on, on developments. And I, I think that that's a whole other thing, right? There's a few things going on. There's this censorship thing, which isn't just uh, disinformation. I think it has some absurd uh, well-intention because they think that misinformation is harmful. They think that they're going to kill people with misinformation and they put it on a par with like white supremacist and, and violent language and or racism and hate speech. And I, I do not see medical misinformation or, or information that's not approved by the leaders as being as harmful as that, that requires such censorship. So I, I think there's a number of things working against ivermectin, uh, some of which is purposeful disinformation. It's my opinion. I'm going to say the last thing is my opinion is that the most egregious and the most inarguable evidence of disinformation is the WHO committee. The disinformationists got to that committee. They told those people to not come out of the room unless they came out with a recommendation against the use of ivermectin. That is disinformation. They totally co-opted and influenced the WHO committee to not recommend ivermectin. And that is a global uh, crime against humanity. Last question, because we could go on and on about that subject. And, and we will at some point, and we will. But we have a last question from Dina Martino. 
if the virus turns out to be lab made and enhanced functionally for transmission and mutation, does this change how you would conceive treating for it over time? I, I don't know that I would, I would, I don't associate those two. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it's, that it's, uh, it's, it came out of a lab accident out of, out of research, out of gain of function research, which is pretty convincing at this point. Um, to be honest, I was convinced that this was a lab accident when I found out one fact, one fact alone made me convinced, and this is months ago, is when I learned that the wet market in which the virus was purportedly to have emerged was 300 yards from the lab doing the gain of function research. And I thought to myself, that's a real coincidence. You mean the wet market is across the street from the lab doing the research? It just so happened that that's where it broke out. I mean, that's insane. So that to me is what proved that it was out of the lab. But, but the question is, does it change how we would treat it? I mean, we would treat diseases as we learn how to treat it. We look for different, we learn about the pathophysiology, the different uh, molecules that work to interrupt those pathophysiologies. We, we, we look at clinical evidence. And so the way in which we treat things is how we learn to treat them. The more we learn about the disease. I, I don't know whether it's, the fact that it came out of a lab accident would change uh, too much. Maybe, Paul, if we had more of the data from those experiments to see, you know, what some of the, you know, activity or what some of those functions that, that they were kind of, you know, uh, developing the virus for, might, might, that might help inform us, but we'd need, we'd need that, that data, right, Paul? Yeah, so I think this, you know, I think they, developed this mutant virus um, and it just kind of through the serial passaging, they developed this highly virulent virus. And I think one can't underestimate how smart this virus is. It does some really weird things and it's just designed to be the perfect weapon. It is a really bad virus. And these people who continue to to associate it with the flu. You know, it's no worse than the flu. You've got to be kidding me. This is a brilliantly designed virus. It's designed to wreak havoc. But that's just the virus. And I think its origin really doesn't change the way we treat it. And, um, you know, you can't underestimate this virus. And it is a pity we are where we are now because we should have eradicated this virus by now. The longer it circulates, the more variants we're gonna get and the less likely we ever gonna get rid of this damn virus. So, you know, it's been a complete and monumental failure of the healthcare leaders across the world to get this disease under control. And who knows what the future holds. We have to leave it there. Green. We've run out of time. Thank you. Thank you, Pierre Corey, Paul Merrick, great doctors, both of you. Thank you. That's all the time we have for. If we didn't get to your question tonight, watch next week. We're going to have another group. It's going to be good, good, good stuff coming up. We're going to talk a little bit more about treating at home next week, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and everything in between. In the meantime, uh, you want to keep up with what we are doing, please check that website, flccc.net. And we want you to see 
the Dark Horse podcast. If you didn't see the whole thing, you really want to see it. It's up there on the front page of flccc.net. Um, and also we've got other videos, testimonies of doctors who've used our protocols and patients who have gotten over the long haul system and other, you know, gotten out of dire situations with the protocols that these doctors have put together. It's just incredibly inspiring and valuable information. Please check it out. And um, thank you right. all of those of you who have donated. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Stay well, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.